All right, it's nine o'clock. Come on in. We'll get seated. We'll start um, Sunday school. Yeah. Everybody move as close as possible because it's a big room. So we'll pray and we'll, we'll get started. Uh, Father, uh, we just come before you uh, this morning. We ask for open ears, open hearts. We ask that you would help us to see your word and be in awe of it so that we can leave this place today uh, with the intent to obey and to love you more. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning uh, we're going to have a little class participation um, as we move along. And then Craig is going to go and, you know, help you with the, the microphone. Wow. So we're going to start off in uh, Psalms um, 110. Uh, as we move toward chapter 7 of, of Hebrews. Psalms 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord stands forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of wrath. He will ex execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There are many things that can be said about this, about this passage, but there's three things I want to draw to your guys' attention. Um, number one, verses one through three, we see a Messiah who's a king. Verses four through seven, we see a Messiah who is priest. And overall, we see God keep his promises. And I want you guys to keep that in mind because as we move through chapter seven, um, we hope to see that. And there's some verses I wanted to you know, share with you to, to kind of support um, this passage. And, and you can write that down. First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. Uh, Second Chronicles. Chapter 6, verses 16. Now, as we've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews, the whole culmination of Hebrews is Christ is the better than. We know his name is greater. We know he's superior than angels. He's a better messenger. He's the better message. He's better than Moses. He's not only our rest, but he's a better rest. And I started asking my question, why, myself this question, why? Why is he the better then? So I'm going to read you this quote 
to help kind of help us to meditate on this question. Quote, it is not simply that Christ is the, the better than, which by all accounts is true, but Christ is the point of all that exists. This is why he is the better than. This is why he is the better than. So, there's some passages that I'm going to ask you guys to read. So, someone please look up Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. When you're ready, you can read it off. Hebrews 2.10? Correct. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's okay. Yeah, no, I do. Just let me leave it there. Uh, can someone read uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5? John 1, 1 through 5? Yeah, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 1 through 5. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. You said Ecclesiastes 12? Yes, ma'am. Verse 13? That is correct. Uh, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I got a bunch of more, but we're going to stop there for the sake of time. So I just wanted you guys to read those passages to get the, what I, the, the point that I'm driving home here is that Christ is the better than because it's all about him. Hands down, period. We were created for him. It pleased him to make us the way he made us, to create the cosmos and everything in it for him. It pleases him. And for a lot of unbelievers, they want a, a bigger rationale for that, like some sort of conspiracy theory, why would God just do something because it pleased him? It's not immoral. It's right. It's okay for us to do things because it makes us happy. Why? Because we get that from our Lord, as long as we're doing things that are moral and good. For example, it's okay for us to eat ice cream because it pleased us. We're not going to the fryer for it. Make sense? Okay. So, uh, so today's point that I want to drive home is this. Once we learn what we're going to learn, what are we going to do about it? That's the question that I kept asking myself in the preparation of uh, this whole um, lesson. What am I going to do about what I learn? Am I just going to take it 
and it's just going to be more head knowledge, or is it going to move me to worship? The people the writer of Hebrews wrote to were essentially struggling with the past, the present, and the future. Their heritage was in question, which was their past. Hardship and maturity and unbelief was their present. Looking to a new hope, which is Christ, was their future. It was hard for them to realize that. Think about that for a second. That's how we are today. We're saved. It's, we struggle to get rid of the past, even though God has released us from it. We have hardship. We struggle with maturing. Some of us struggle with our faith. We're struggling with people who are unbelievers. This is what these people were doing. Nothing's different, except for the time frame. They're struggling with their, their past, their present, and their future. That's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing with them. So what I want to do is I want you guys to really take notes, because I'm going to go with the Levitical priesthood, and then I'm going to rattle off six things, because we're going to do contrast between Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, and Levitical priesthood, and we're going to be able to talk about that. So first we're going to look at the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood began with Aaron, the older brother of Moses. Aaron's descendants served as the priest in Israel, ministering in the tabernacles and then later uh, in the temple, primarily as mediators between man and God. The Levitical priests had resp the responsibility of offering sacrifices required by the Mosaic law. And you can find this in Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 3. The word Levitical comes from the tribe of Levi, the third son of Leah and Jacob. Levi was the father of the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe of Moses and Aaron originally. And you can also find this in Genesis 29, verse 34. The high priests could deliver uh, edicts to guide the nation. He was the only one permitted to enter the most holy place, divided by a curtain from the rest of the tabernacle that contained the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest only entered the most holy place once a year, which was the Day of Atonement, to offer sacrifices for the people, including himself. There was only one high priest at a time. The Levitical priests also served as judges. You can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8. 13, and teachers of God's law, which is also in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 10. <clears throat> this is why I would like you guys to take notes so we can start doing some comparisons. So we have six things. I'm going to go slow so you can write it down, unlike last time. <clears throat> Number one, the Levitical priesthood, it was national. What does that mean? That at the time, the Levitical priesthood, or Israel as a whole, saw God as just their God. The best way that I can explain that, I want you guys to think about Jonah and the Ninevites. Jonah had a lot of problems. One, and right, well, rightfully so, because the Ninevites weren't very nice to um, the Jews in those days. But God went to Jonah and told him, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. That's why he took off. But he didn't want to. Why? Because he knew that God had planned on to forgive them. So in his mind, it was kind of like a holy huddle. He didn't want to share God. He didn't 
at all. So I'm using that as an example because that was the mindset of the, the, the Jews and the Levitical priesthood at the time. They looked at their, their holy little huddle as national. That was it. There was, no, there was no overarching God. It was just, this is our God, and that's all there was to it. Number two, it wasn't royal. It wasn't royal at all. They were servants. They were doing their job. Number three, righteousness and peace had to be obtained through the sacrifices. Number four, it was hereditary. You got in because your father was a priest. That was it. Had nothing to do with your character, whether you believed or not. It was just your daddy was who he was. You fell in the line. You're a priest. Number five, it was temporary. And this is where the rub kind of came in for the Jews, especially when Christ touched down. Why was it temporary? One, because, well, people died. That makes things temporary. It pointed to something better than itself, and there was an age limit. You guys can check me on this. It was around 50 or 65 years old, and that was it. And number six, God never gave it a promise that it was going to be around forever. So I think we all can relate to this. So like when I was a, a, a child, my father would let me borrow his stuff. And this is where I learned the word homesteading. And he would say, tell me, stop homesteading my stuff. Because he would let me borrow his tools or something that belonged to him. And I just, just took it as it was just mine. My dad never came to me and promised that, okay, this is yours forever or you get to have this. He was just allowing me to use it. And this was the mindset of the Jews in those days. They just looked at it, well, this is going to be us forever. No big deal. Again, because in their mind, they serve God nationally. It was just their God. That was it. Yeah, we, we're going to be an example, but we're not going to do anything about it. And they wanted the, they wanted the, the benefit, but no responsibility. That's why they kept falling into idolatry, in and out of idolatry, in and out of idolatry. But then they want to come over on the other side and say, well, this is our God. And then when God comes along and he opens everything up, then they get upset. You guys know anybody like that? They want it both ways. <clears throat> so now we're going to read um, the passage. But we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through to the end of chapter 7. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no, greater, no one greater by whom to uh, swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swore, sw swore by something greater than themselves. And all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his, prom, his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place 
behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first. By translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Through these also are descendants from Abraham, descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by moral men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priest, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah. And in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an inscrutable life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope in is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from the continuing in office. But 
He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Just a side note, there's 13 arguments here that the writer of Hebrews has given. Twelve of these arguments sits and rests on chapter 7 because the sacrificial system wasn't just a way to obtain forgiveness, but it was cultural. It, made a, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. So all the other chapters that we're seeing is going to fall short if we don't grasp why Christ is who he is, why it's important for us to understand that he is our high priest and that he's our king. So did you guys write down the, the six points of um, Levitical priesthood? I hope so. Okay, good. Because now we're going to do some compare and contrast. Okay, so now we read the passage. Number one, Melchizedek was the first and last appearance was in Genesis. Chapter 14, 18 to 20. God chose not to leave or give too much of that. And that's good. I know a lot of times people wrestle with, for example... Uh, the writer of Hebrews. A lot of uh, guessing, but we don't know. And it's okay for God to leave those things out. He puts those things in there for a reason. My wife once told me, he, she said, I'm realizing that we should focus on the things that God actually has told us instead of trying to figure out the cosmic stuff. I made the right one. <clears throat> His name means righteousness. His priesthood was universal. So, can you guys remember how the Levitical priesthood, if the order of Melchizedek's priesthood is universal, which means that he was the king of the most high. So I hope you guys see the picture of salvation, a picture of salvation here. So for the, the Jews at that time, remember God was just, it was their God. Melchizedek represented God universally, both. So by the time Jesus came and he touched down and did what he did, that's why it was so hard for them, a lot of the Jews, to understand that Christ was who he was and that he was offering salvation to the Gentiles. So the Levitical priesthood was national, and that was it. This is our holy huddle, this is our God, and nobody else's. Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 no. This is how it's always been. We're going to open it up to everybody, of course, through election. Another point here, it was royal. Remember, Melchizedek was a king priest. Remember, he's pushing or, or pointing to who Christ is. In the Levitical priesthood, there was just servanthood. There was no royalty there at all. 
He brought about righteousness and peace. They had to obtain it through sacrifices. And it was perpetual over and over and over and over. And his priesthood was personal. So the, the best way I can explain this is that, remember, theirs was hereditary. So you were in because your father was in, or you fell in the line of Levi. What Melchizedek represented was, his, look at Christ's character, plain and simple. That's why it's personal. And the best way I can, I can use, say that is by Thomas Watson, uh, the English Puritan preacher, he speaks about uh, Christ's character. And I thought this was very um, notable. He says this, Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. So let me, let me slow that down a little bit. Christ walked towards his sacrifice for us, made atonement, opened up the floodgates for us to be able to go to God, and we struggle through our pride, through our arrogance, through our sin, or whatever you want to call it, and we won't go to the throne of grace. Whose character is better? So it's personal. His priesthood was eternal, whereas Levitical priesthood was temporary. And it was met with the promise. It was met with the promise. Because of Dex priesthood is seen superior by receiving, receiving tithes. He blessed Abraham, which demonstrates his importance and how great he was. Because the greater blesses the lesser. God blesses us. He gives to us. And even what we do give back to him Okay, for those who have kids, I've had this happen. Like, you give your kid $5 and, and then they give it back. They didn't do anything. Does that make sense? You gave them something and they just gave back what you got. That's what we do with the Lord. So whatever, whatever thanksgiving we have, whatever humility that we're able to, quote unquote, muster up, God's given it to us through various circumstances and uh, uh, life situations. And lastly, he is a type. He's a foreshadow of uh, Christ to come. So we just went over a picture of a king. So I wanted to contrast the Levitical priesthood with Melchizedek's priesthood, and it's pointing to a perfect, a perfect king. Secondly, we're going to look at a picture of a priest. This will be verses 11 through 19. Verses 11 through 19. There was a, a changing of the guard. The old system needed continual replacements, whereas the new system ushered in a permanent and perfect hope. Melchizedek priesthood points to a secure future. So I have some questions for you guys. With that said, as, as Christians, do you point unsaved people to a better future? Do you point, when the opportunity comes, when you get a divine appointment with somebody, wherever you're at, do you take the time to point the unbeliever to a more secure future? Second question. As a Christian, 
do you continue to move towards your future, which is Christ? Do you continue to move towards your future, which is Christ? What that means is there's some people, some believers, some professing believers, this is what they do. They will, well, God saves them, or they'll say, okay, God saved me, so on and so forth. We're going to take that. And then in their minds, God cleans them up morally, you know, maybe help them in their marriage, and that's it. They're living, they're living a good life, and that's it for them. They don't move no further. Then there's the other type of believer who God saves, and they're striving constantly because they see Christ as their future. Some people look at Christ as, do this for me. Life is good. I'm morally cleaned up. Me and the old lady ain't fighting anymore. My kids are doing well, yada, 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 and we're good. We're good to go. Some of us know professing believers like that. And then the other type of believer is one who is falling on their face constantly and consistently because we know that Christ is our future. So I encourage you with these two questions. With the unbeliever, are you pointing that person or persons towards a better hope? After they give you their worldview, point them to a better hope, Christ. And are we making sure that we are paying attention to our souls? How we speak, what we do, all these things, they matter. Point three. Now we see God. He keeps his promises. Verses 28, 20 to 28. We'll break these down in, in, in three ways. Verses 20 to 22. We are reminded that God keeps his promises. That's a big thing. It's huge to be reminded. This whole week, God reminded me that he keeps his promise. Verses 23 to 25. We see a priest who saves permanently and completely and has given us full access to draw near to the Father. That's a gift. So he keeps his promises, and then he gives us this gift to have full access to the Father. So then we'll go back up real quick before I read the, the, the third one here. So now that we know that God keeps his promises, or we remind that God keeps his promises, and he's given this gift by giving full access to the Father, I'll go back up to the to questions again. With that thought in mind, are you talking to the unsaved and pointing them to a better future? And are you striving to move towards that future. Knowing that God keeps his promises, knowing that he has given Christ and his work has opened up the door for us to have full access to the Father. Full access. We can come humbly. I suggest broken, but that's just me. So, verses 26 to 28. We see a priest who intercedes for us and is able to keep us. So this, this is where, for me, the, the, I was telling Craig just a minute ago, so, you know, ever since I started you know, and, and been, been offered to come into the, the, the teaching ministry, I mean, teaching and, and, and all this, it's getting real personal for me. Really, really personal. Uncomfortably personal. It's hit me in, in, in ways that, that I didn't think it would. So when I see that in 26 to 28, we see a priest who intercedes for us and is able to keep us. 
So I, I just have a couple of questions here. When you're struggling in your sin, this thought should comfort you. When you are praying for unsaved friends and family members and you feel like you're not going to be able to make it, this should comfort you because he's keeping us. I want to get into some questions here, but I'm going to, to end where, um, where I started. I'm going to read Psalms 110 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. As I said before, there's many things that can be said about this passage. But I hope that you guys have been able to see a Messiah who's a king, who conquers our sin and sovereignly has a perfect plan to bring all of it under his reign and rule, the earth and everybody in it. And I hope that you were able to see a Messiah who's a priest, who intercedes for us constantly and consistently. In preparing for this message, I saw that big time. I spent quite a few mornings on my face. And as a whole, I hope you guys got to see a God who keeps his promises, that his character and his integrity there, and we can hang our hats on that. So I'd like to open up with some discussion. There's three questions, and I'm going to go first. All these questions are personal, so I thought I'd share it. Number one, when hardship comes, to whom or what do you most often find yourself running to? Now, I want you to notice in that question, it says most often. I'm going to be honest. It's not Christ. I've shared with you I have a struggle with food. I was talking to Corey yesterday. Generally, I look like I'm in decent shape, so I can hide it. I can hide my sin from your gaze. I can hide that sin from, well, not my wife, because she caught the cheeseburgers. But for most of you, yes. So when I'm upset, I do one or two things. Um, well, three, actually. Well, okay, one leads to the other. I get really angry, which sends me to take a nap. I'm not really sure how that works. Or I just, I want to wrap myself in food. Now, I know the ladies are going through respectable sins. On the surface, it's like, well, what's the big deal? As long as you just, you know, kill the anger, you know, you know that's your wife and, you know, and, and Craig and Nick and Dan ain't got to come talk to you, you're good. But what I'm doing is, is this, watch, watch. Instead of running to Christ, which is my strong tower, my shelter, I meet my feelings. Because the way I look, the way I look, I can hide it from everybody. 
So at 4.30 in the morning, which you know, some of you know that I'm getting up, I'm on, fa- I'm on my face, on the floor, asking for forgiveness because it's sin. It's respectable to maybe some of you guys, but it's, it's grievous to the Lord. Number two, knowing Christ as priest and king, how is this expressed in your Christian walk? Okay, so recently I popped off at the mouth to a close friend. And I had to, so I had to eat crow. And for those of you who have had to do that, I'm just telling you, it tastes good with butter. I had to humble myself and I had to go ask for forgiveness and I had to take complete responsibility for my actions. No excuses. I popped off. I, I said what I said and that was it. And the Lord took it a step further and it's like, you know, why, did you, you know, why are you doing that? Well, because I looked at this person a certain kind of way. I didn't see them in Mago Day. I didn't see them as an image bearer. I built up this, this idea in my head about who they were, and then that was just it. And so I felt like, well, I'll just talk to them anyway, and they'll just naturally just get over it. And you're not going to go anywhere else because you, you ain't got no friends, you ain't got nobody but me, and that's it. But I was convicted of it. So that question really spoke to who was the authority in my life. Because there was nobody around but me and that person. I ended up telling my wife about it. But I was convicted of it because Christ is my king. So I had to go back and I had to apologize. And that was it. And then wait for them to forgive me. Because that's how it works when you screw up. There's no demanding. You just sit down and shut up. Question three. God keeps his promises. How has knowing this comforted you in the last six months? Some of you might say, why did you pick six months? Well, I'm just saying this. If you've been, been saved for a long period of time, if he hasn't done anything, you know, just, you can only tell me something he did five years ago or ten years ago. The elders are here. You need to talk to them. Something's wrong with the walk. Something's wrong with the walk. Because this should comfort you. This whole week, I was comforted. Because I just, you know, this is my sin. And I knew I could go to my father and ask for forgiveness. So, now that my cards are on the table, anybody else? It'll just open us up. Just one of the songs that we sing regularly is, Where Else Will We Go? Right? You, you hold the keys of eternal life. And I mean, that's what this passage, that's what your questions are basically getting at. I mean, where else will you go? I mean, nothing else is going to fix or remedy the problem. Why would, why would, why do we, not why would we, why do we go to these other places first before going right, right to the Lord? That's why we need to be sharpening each other's iron like we are now and singing the songs that we do regularly and worshiping regularly. Yeah, as far as where do we run to first, um, I think for me and probably for a lot of people, um, when we find sin, I think we run to ourselves and try to fix it. I know that's how I am usually. Um, I want to clean it up first before I take it to God. 
and uh, that's the opposite. You know, you're supposed to go to him first, and then he's going to help you clean it up. Yeah, I was just thinking along the lines of number three and just being comforted by knowing that he is faithful, his faithfulness to, to complete the work that he has began within us um, and all the other promises that he has in the word. When the, when the enemy is working and you have doubt and discouragement and, and things like that, um, you know that you can take refuge in the promises that he's given in the word because um, they proceed from his character. And we know that he's trustworthy and reliable, so we can trust in his word and his promises. Well, number two, that's my, my favorite question. And I really want to hear from you guys on this. How, is, how does Christ's kingship is being exercised in your life? How is it being exercised in your life? It's one of the things, and, and when I say this, I'm not coming from a place... Like, I got it sewed up because I'm no Betsy Ross here, but through God's word, I'm being very, um, God is making me very aware of who I'm behind in the closed, with the, behind the closed door the same, and, and, and who I am in the public. I need to be both. I need to be both. I need to be both. So I know I've struggled with it. I want to be who I'm, like, when I'm sitting with, before you guys now, I want to be that same person when, I'm in the privacy of my own home. I'm just with my wife. You know, I don't want to treat her no differently either way or my son either way or doing things or looking at things or thinking things, whatever you want to call it. It's just been really heavy on my heart to make sure that his kingship is in, in all every areas of, 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 my, of my life. So I just want to hear, you know, you guys have some examples, some encouragements, some things that you want to share in that way. Um, I think what you had shared earlier um, about having to go back and ask for forgiveness from an individual um, really carries some weight because of what you had mentioned and something that I try to remember with this question in mind about the, the kingship is that they're image bearers of Christ and so we should be treating others with that same mindset as being an image bearer but then how that looks to that relationship with your king. And I think especially as a parent, when your kids are just acting up, they're just being rowdy and doing all the, doing all the things that yeah. kids do, and that's the thing that we need to sometimes see as a blessing, or we need to work on our instruction more than um, our discipline sometimes. It's how we discipline and love, and having that king mindset is these little hearts that we are that we have in our home to be mindful that they are image bearers and that we are serving our king by serving our children and sometimes that comes with lots and lots of patience with lots and lots of enduring and a lot of times checking ourselves because of how maybe our we're handling stress or handling some of those private sins are sometimes come out on how we handle our children. That's not discipline sometimes. Sometimes that's overreacting and sometimes and we'll call it discipline, but it's not. It's, it needs to be checked. And they are, we are supposed to be directing them towards the king and how we discipline or how we lose our cool or pop, you know, whatever we do and want to call it 
are we directing them towards the king? And that's a big check for parents and myself, you know, to how are we doing this privately and how are we showing them Christ? Thank you. Because it all boils down to um, authority. And for those of you know that I'm you know, into the apologetics and I talk to professing believers too, and after you know, I um, do my thing, I always ask them at the end of the day, you said you were a Christian, right? Yeah, well, who's the boss? After all the mental and intellectual you know, meandering that, that I have to go through to get to that question, once I get to that question, then we find out who's who. And sometimes people say, well, me. And I'm like, well, I can't say you're not saved. I don't, I don't know, but you need to rethink. Because you're flying the Christian flag. At the end of the day, who's your authority? That's really what this question is about. Anybody else before I pray or? Well, I'll close this in prayer. Thank you. Uh, Father, we just come before you, Lord, again. Um, as we continue to engage in corporate worship, we just ask, Lord, that questions like these just aren't, aren't just here and then gone, that we would carry this in our hearts and think about these things, that conviction would fall upon us to think about who's our authority. Who, who or what are we running to outside of you? And to be reminded that you keep us, you keep your promises, not because we did anything to merit that, but because it, it demonstrates the love you have for your people and for your name. We thank you in your sons, let me pray. Amen.